Lord, we do thank you for being able to gather together tonight, Jesus. I do pray as we have this time together that your Holy Spirit would just continue to speak to us, Lord. I pray that you would just continue to purify us, Lord, and continue to work into us, uh, our hearts, that you would be enough for us, Lord, that you would be the only one and the only thing we would desire all the days of our life here on planet Earth. I ask this and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight, the sections we're going to be looking at the next couple of weeks is barriers to learning that God is enough. Because we don't realize how much we look to other things, which the Bible calls idols. And if you were doing the sugar fast with us, that book really exposes a lot of other things that we turn to besides God. And one of the barriers that we're going to look at tonight to learning that God is enough is it's a barrier when we're seeking satisfaction in idols or other things. Timothy Keller from Counterfeit Gods defined an idol like this. He said, is anything more important to you than God? Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. And how many times as women have we done that with relationships, whether with our spouse or maybe a friend or maybe even our children or grandchildren? So easy to make anything an idol. Anything we love more than God is an idol. Anything. Again, this is from Timothy Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods. We know a good thing has become a counterfeit God when it demands, when its demands on you exceed proper boundaries. I'm going to say that again since it came out kind of shaky there. We know a good thing has become a counterfeit God when its demand on you exceeds proper boundaries. That thing is controlling me. Whatever that thing is. I'm consumed with it in my thinking, in my desires. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. How many here can relate to what's being said? Yeah. How many of us have chased after things to give us meaning, to have value, to feel significant or secure. Especially, I want to say this, especially those of us that have maybe come from broken families or blended families at a very young age. 
somehow we tend to carry that into our relationships with other people, looking for security, safety, in other things or other people, and all the while God is saying, look to me, look to me. I'm the only one you can find security, safety, peace in. He's the only one. An idol is placing misplaced affection and dependence on a person, place, or thing. John Wesley said all pride is idolatry. What do you do with that statement? All pride is a form of idolatry. An idol is anything that if it's taken away, you would blame God, someone said anonymously. An idol is anything that if it's taken away, you would blame God for it by saying, God, you're not good. These are the things that are barriers to letting God be enough for us. So how do we know something is not an idol? And this is from the Bible study. When we are truly willing to live without it, and when we truly say from the heart, because I have God, I can live without you. That's a, something to really ponder there. It's when we truly are willing to live without whatever that thing might be, and we can truly say from our heart and really mean it, not just lip service, because I have God, I can live without you. Why? Because he's enough for me. He's enough for me. How many here know the rich young ruler, right? Mark 10, verse 17 through 22, he had position, he had possessions, and he had morality, right? He told Jesus that he kept the law perfectly. And Jesus went right after his idol. He said, one thing you lack, go sell, hmm? all these microphones, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. See, he loved his material wealth and his possessions were God, his God. And how do we know that? Because he walked away sad when Jesus told him that. King Solomon, how many have read the book of Ecclesiastes? It's a wonderful book to read. If you've never read, read it, I would read it because you could really see life in that book. And Solomon was the wealthiest man alive and he said in Ecclesiastes, everything his eyes saw, he desired, he was able to attain it. Could you imagine that? Having all the wealth in the world that you can get anything you want. How many times do we see that, right? With actors and actresses, and they still commit suicide. Musicians, they still commit suicide because they're empty inside. It doesn't satisfy. Solomon, had everything, but yet his life was empty. 
In 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 13, I'm just going to give some points from what we read about his life. He loved many foreign women. And if you remember, the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, foreign women, nor they with you. Why? Because God knew that they would turn away their hearts and follow after their gods that they worshiped. And it's crazy because when you look at Solomon's life, it says that he had 700 wives. <laughs> Maddie's mouth is like, what? Say what? I know, isn't that crazy? 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. One is enough. One is enough. If I brought the husbands in here, I'm sure they would say a hearty amen to that. <laughs> Could you imagine? All those wives. And every one of them turned Solomon's heart away from God. When Solomon was old, it's sad. When he was old, his wives turned his heart to worship other gods. And we're going to look at some of the other gods that he was worshiping and say, how can that be? Solomon went after Ashtoreth. She was the goddess of the Sidonians. Ashtoreth was known as the queen of heaven. Sounds familiar? A Canaanite goddess, a fertility goddess. Solomon was worshiping at that altar. The Canaanites would bring burnt offerings to this queen of heaven. She was the supreme female deity of the Phoenicians associated with Baal, the supreme god. Devil worship, pure devil worship. One of the myths about Ashtoreth is referred to as the goddess of the sea and of the fishermen and the wife of the god of Baal. And here was Solomon bowing down to that altar. Solomon also went after Milcom, who was the abomination of the Amorites. Milcom played the role of the Amorites, chief god in parallel to Yahweh's role in Israel. I will be like God. Who does that remind you of? Satan, I will be like God. Then Solomon built a high place for Shemesh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Moloch, the abomination of the people of Ammon. Shemesh was the supreme deity of the Canaanite state of Moab, which is modern-day Jordan. The patron god of its population, King Solomon built a sanctuary to him in the east of Jerusalem, in 1 Kings 11, verse 7. You can read that account. And the shrine was later demolished by King Josiah. Thank God for King Josiah. 2 Kings 23:13. he demolished the shrine, the shrine. Moloch was the god of fire and sacrifice, a Canaanite god associated with the sacrifice of children. Sound familiar? 
Leviticus 18.21, God told Moses, do not allow any of your offspring to be offered up to Moloch. And Solomon built a, an altar for him because of his foreign wives. Idolatry. Even though he was brought up by King David, his wives turned him away from following after Yahweh. And the Lord became angry with Solomon, we read about in 1 Kings, because his heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Willful rebellion. And usually, when we go after our idols, whatever they are, I think about all the definitions that we looked at when we started this class, we are willfully rebelling against God. It's like we know we're not supposed to be turning to those other things, but we do it anyway, don't we? Yeah, we do it anyway. And somehow we think, oh, it's okay. God understands, I'm tired, or I need a break, or it's my birthday. I'm gonna go buy myself a cake and eat the whole thing. <laughs> How many of us have done that? One slice, one slice, one slice, one slice, and then it's gone, right? The Lord said to Solomon, because you've done this and have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David but I will tear it out of your hand, the hands of your son. However, I will not tear away the whole kingdom and I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. And we know God kept that promise. He kept that promise. So likewise, I wanna look at the culture in Ephesus because when we look at Ephesus, we see the similarities in our generation. Just like we looked at some of the altars that were built in Solomon's time, and we could see still to this day some of those gods, false gods, that are being worshiped. And it's sad because some of those things have crept into the church age. And people really think it's okay to do this. And it's not. God is still the same. Well, in Ephesus, what we see there, Ephesus was one of the largest cities of the Roman Empire, and Rome ruled the world at one time. The city was prosperous as a commercial center, providential capital, and port city in the Eastern Roman Empire. It boasted in numerous monuments, theaters, and temples. Ephesus was an international tourist destination, so profitable that its leaders opened the first World Bank. I couldn't help as I was reading through this thinking of New York City. The city was a frequent stop for Paul, who stayed almost three years, and he helped establish a church there. So in Acts chapter 19, verse 26 to 35, what we see in that portion of scripture, Paul had persuaded and turned away many people saying that they are not gods which are made by hands. He was seeing that they were worshiping false gods. 
the Romans. I mean, you think about what the Romans were involved in, you could read through Romans 1, and that was the culture, what they were involved in. But also, there was also a temple there. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. Does anyone know what that temple was? Aphrodite. Artemis. Artemis, Aphrodite. The temple of the great goddess Diana. Diana. All of Asia and the whole world would go there to worship Diana. And in Acts 19, what we see there is when Paul had confronted them about the false gods they were worshiping, especially the goddess of Diana, they were full of wrath crying out, saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Artis, I should have listened to these names before I did this, Um, Artis, I know I'm butchering his his name, A-R-I-S-T-A-R-C-H-U-S. Anyone want to guess how to pronounce that? No, everyone's shaking their head no for those that are listening. Macedonians and Paul's travel companions. Paul, you know, reality is Paul wanted to go to the people, but they didn't want him to go to the people because they knew if you go to the people, they're going to basically, like, really, I mean, you're confronting their gods. And they were full with wrath and rage. And Paul knew he was going to suffer many things for the sake of the gospel, but he was willing to go anyway. Because he knew they were worshiping the wrong gods, the wrong goddesses. They were being led astray. They were being deceived. And he felt, I got to do something about this. I need to say something, even though I know it's going to cost me. I have to let them know you're worshiping idols, false gods. They're blind, they're deaf, they can't speak. So when the Jews found out what was happening, all of them with one voice cried out for about two hours. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Can you imagine that? That's all they said for two hours. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is a temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? So the Romans were involved in all kinds of worship. And you see that. If any of you have ever studied Greek mythology or philosophy, you see all that. So many false gods were in the world. But we have them too in our lives. 
Remember, we think an idol is anything we think that can give us security, right? Give us meaning, give us value, give us purpose. It's no wonder that John in 1 John 5, 21, he wrote so sweetly this epistle and it was written to the church in Ephesus. He said, dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your heart. So tender. You could hear the tenderness in that sentence. Keep away from anything that might take God's place in your heart. That word keep means to be vigilant, to persist in, to be aware of, to stay away from anyone or anything that might take God's place in our lives. Paul in 1 Corinthians, when he wrote to the church in Corinth, in chapter 10, verse 14, he says, so my dear friends, flee from the worship of idols. And you see the tender care and concern in the apostles for the church body in Ephesus, in, Cor in Corinth. This word flee, when we're told to flee from the worship of idols in 1 Corinthians means to shun, to escape, to flee away, to seek safety by flight, something abhorrent, especially other vices to turn to. And when I was reading that, I was just saying, man, that sounds so much like what happened with Joseph and Potiphar's wife. And I looked up that word flee, it's the same word, flee, to run. Joseph ran from Potiphar's wife. We're to run from anything that would ensnare us or lead us away from the Lord or lead us to a place where we will, because we're turning to that other thing, whatever that other thing is for you, God is not enough. Because that's basically what we're saying when we're turning to whatever that other thing is that you turn to, that I turn to, we're basically saying, God, you're not enough for me at this moment. I have to have this. I, 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 can I have you and this? So the first point that we look at from the Bible study there is the insufficiency of idols. And we all know God is a jealous God, right? Scripture tells us that. But the jealousy that God exhibits is not what we immediately think of as jealousy. He's neither envious nor resentful like our jealousy. See, if we're jealousy, it's used, if we're jealous, it's because we're envious or resentful. That, well, why do they have so-and-so? Or why are they getting recognized? Or why this? Or why that? Or why the other thing? God is not jealous as Greeks thought of mere success or greatness, but he is very jealous of his honor and will not have the respect and reverence which is his due bestowed on other things or beings or in 
inanimate objects, George Rowlinson stated. So when we look at Exodus 14, 12 through 14, this is when God delivered his people from Pharaoh and he parted the Red Sea. And we all know what happened when they got on the other side of the Red Sea, right? What did they do? They built a calf. And Aaron said, I don't know what happened. <laughs> it just came out of the fire. <laughs> Man, God had just delivered them from Egypt, which was steeped in all kinds of superstition. Yes, yeah, superstition. <laughs> and all kinds of idolatry and false worship. And God had just delivered them from that, and they just automatically went back in their hearts to the worship of a golden calf. In Exodus 20, verses 1 through 6, we read about the Ten Commandments. God had said very clearly to them, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself a carved image like any, any for look. You shall not make for yourself a carved image any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth you shall not bow down to them nor serve them for i the lord your god am a jealous god visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing mercy to thousands to those who love and keep my commandments so basically, God wanted to be their God to them. He wanted to be enough for them. He was in a covenant relationship with them, same like with us. He's in a covenant relationship with us. And I know it grieves his heart when he sees that we're turning to other things because he knows that's not what you need. That's not what's going to satisfy you. It's me that you need. But they were unjust. They were unfaithful. They were ungrateful. We read this all throughout the Psalms when you read about the account in the wilderness. They were rebellious. The prophets said they were stiff-necked, even though he brought them out of slavery and a harsh taskmaster they still were choosing other things other than God. And then they would grumble and complain and grumble and complain and accuse God, you brought us out here to kill us. And he didn't. He said, when you come into the land of promise, build an altar there for me so you can worship. And they accused him. You brought us out here to kill us. Basically, what they were saying is, you're not good. You don't keep your promises. I have to have you end. I mean, think about Solomon. We just looked at his life. King David was his father. I'm sure King David gave him much wisdom how to go after God and what happened with Bathsheba, how he fell into that sin, 
And yet we look at Solomon's life and it's like, even though you grow up in a godly home, a godly atmosphere, you can still go astray in your heart. Jeremiah 10, verses 8 through 11. God's people were cautioned not to learn the ways of the heathen in Babylon. And they were steeped in idolatry, astrology. Uh, they were into all kinds of superstition. And what Jeremiah wrote there, he said, they are altogether dull-hearted and foolish. A wooden idol is a worthless doctrine. Silver is beaten into plates, it's brought from Tarshish, and gold from Uphaz. The work of the craftsmen and the hands of the metalsmith, blue and purple are their clothing. They are all the work of skillful men, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth will tremble and the nations will not be able to endure his indignation. Thus you shall say to them, the gods that have not made the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens. Just the reality of all those other things that we might look to, all the other things that they were looking to, they were all passing away. The lust of this world, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is all passing away. We read that in scripture, but he who does the will of the, the Father, he's the one that abides forever. So God has clearly declared in his word, if you read scripture from the Genesis on to the book of Revelation, God has clearly declared in his word the devastating effects of misplaced affections and dependence upon them. Because again and again and again, they just let us down. They leave us empty. They leave us feeling hollowed inside. And then the enemy is there to say, look at you, you hypocrite. Right? Look at you. You say, I love God with all of my heart, but do you really? We sang that song again tonight. That one person is like, I can't sing that because it's not true. What's that song again, Cindy? The Revelation song, what's that one line in there? I don't know why it don't stick in my head, but when we're singing it, you are my everything. You are my everything. Is he? Well, that's how I was singing it tonight. I was singing it just like that. I, Lord, I want you to be my everything because I know you're not my everything. I still have other things I look to. So I need you to purify my heart. I need you to get at the idols in my heart that I have erected. And he's faithful. If you pray and ask him to do that, he will show you what they are. And you write them down, and it's like, Lord, I repent of these things. Rip it out of me. Because we don't realize they become strongholds in our lives. They are strongholds. In our search for satisfaction, it's so easy to allow something good to take God's place in our hearts, and we see that in the following scriptures that we're going to look at in the New Testament. 
And I don't know how many times we've gone through Matthew 6, 25 and all the years we've been doing Bible studies, but here we are again. Jesus said, therefore I say to you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not your life more than food and the body more than clothing? And we've looked at that. Right? Not being caught up with the temporal, but realizing we are eternal beings with a soul. And one day we're going to leave this body. What are the potential idols that are being addressed in this portion of scripture? Security. That's good. Exactly. We look for security in those things, right? That we have enough food to eat, that we have enough water, or whatever it might be. All our needs are being met, right? But how might these things exceed their proper boundaries? When that's all you think about. When that's all you think about. The minute you get up throughout the day, and you lay your head on the pillow at night, that's when you know, okay, this is becoming an idol to me. I'm being consumed by it when I should be consumed with the Lord. When we look at Luke 14, 25 through 33, again, we're looking at potential idols that are addressed and how they might exceed proper boundaries. Jesus said, now great multitudes went with him, or Luke wrote, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, and if you look up that word, it doesn't really mean hate, it means to love less. The Greek word is to love less. He's not telling you to hate your mother and your father. <laughs> he said love them less, which makes sense because what's the first and greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and strength, right? So Jesus is saying, if anyone comes to me and does not hate or love less, his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cross? whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he's laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish? Or what king going to war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. So when we look at that portion of scripture, what are the potential idols being addressed here? Our relationships. Our relationships with who? family members how might they exceed proper boundaries when you love them more, you love them more. 
How about if you know God has a call on your life? You know God is calling you to a mission field. See, coming to Kentucky for me was a mission field. I knew God had a call. But let's say God has a call on your life. And if your parents tell you, I don't want you to go, it's not safe. I don't want you to go. I don't want you to answer that call. What are you going to do? Are you going to obey God or obey your parents? How might this portion of scripture that we read exceed their proper boundaries when you know God is calling you and he has a call on your life? and yet your parents don't want you to go. Will you still go? That's how you know whether your family's an idol for you. Because remember what we read from the very beginning, and I'm gonna scroll way back there, and hopefully I find what I'm wanting to say here. How do we know something's not an idol? When we are truly willing to live without it, and when we truly say from the heart, because I have God, I can live without you. Because he's my all in all. So again, we're looking at the first barrier to allowing God to be all in all in our lives because of the other idols we put before him. And as we saw, it could be whether we want security from Matthew 6.25 or we could put our family in the place of God where what they think is more important than what we know God is telling us through his word, through the Holy Spirit maybe through your spiritual leaders, what God is saying, how he wants to use your life. Second Corinthians 11.3, Paul said, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of woman is man and the head of Christ is God. So we're looking at another idol here. What are the potential idols being addressed here? <coughs> position. Would you say position within a marriage? Yes. yes. So what is the idol here? Be our husbands or ourselves wanting control. Right, because what we see here, God has designed how headship is supposed to be. Our husband, yeah. So the potential idol is wanting to right, to be in control, but I liked how you were saying it the first time. To usurp, to usurp his authority. Doesn't matter if he's not acting Christ-like. 
doesn't matter. Doesn't say submit to him if he's being godly and loving and kind and gentle. And what do you do in your heart when he's not being loving and kind and godly and gentle? This ain't an idol for you. See, everything I share with you, I know I've shared this with you before in other Bible studies, God deals with me on. But I know if he deals with me on different things, it's going to trickle down to the rest of the body because that's just how it works. Same thing with Jeff preaching on Sundays. Every time we come through an area where God shows us, we repent of it, we know, okay, God's about to purify the rest of the body. Why? Because we're a body, different members. He's the head. He's the head. So let's look at one more, because I know it's like, all right already. One honest soul here. New Yorker, of course. <laughs> New Yorker, of course. All right, Colossians 2, 20 through 22. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. What are the potential idols being addressed here? <laughs> Holiness. This is in context with the basic principles of the world. Living by the law. Think about basic principles of the world. How do we make ourselves righteous before God? Do's and don'ts. Do's and don'ts. The world is full of a lot of do's and don'ts, right? Do eat this, don't do this. Do this, don't do this. Do that, don't do this. Do this, don't do that. Which kingdom are we living for? We always have to look at that. Which kingdom am I living for? Am I valuing what the world says as far as my life in this world? Even as far as relationship with God. You believe in God? You really believe he exists? You really believe he resurrected from the dead? You really believe all the people saw him? You really believe that? Have you faced that from the world? You're in delusion. You have a mental illness, I think. That's coming. <laughs> How might reading about these things exceed their proper boundaries 
right? When it's all you care about. You care more about what man thinks than what God thinks. I remember a long time ago a saint had said to me, she's probably in her 80s now, she said, people are going to think what people are going to think because they're people. And I was like, she's right. So why am I trying so hard to convince them unless I'm seeking their approval? Because regardless, they're still going to think what they're going to think. That was the best advice I ever got. Because it made me stop to think about that, what she was saying. It's like, why is that so important to me? Why do I care? So these are some of the boundaries that hinder us from knowing that God is enough for us. Spurgeon said, isn't God enough to meet all your needs? Or is his all-sufficiency too little for your needs? Do you want another eye besides the one that sees everything, every secret thing? Is his heart faint? Is his arm weary? If so, seek another God. But if he is infinite, omnipotent, faithful, true, and all-wise, then why run around looking for another confidence? Why rake the earth to find another foundation when this one is strong enough to bear all the weight you can ever build on? And that's why we do Bible studies like this. <laughs> because it's like, what am I thinking? What am I thinking? That's our second point there, the sufficiency of Christ. Isaiah 57 verse 20 says, those who still reject me are like the restless sea, which is never still, but continually churns up mud and dirt. Meaning when we depend on anything other than God to fulfill us, how many of us have remained restless and empty? How many here firsthand know that? Think about your life before Christ. All the things you pursued before you came to the Lord. Maybe it was your career. I know for me it was my career. Maybe it was relationships. Maybe vacationing. From one vacation to the other vacation to the other vacation to the other vacation. Maybe it was material things. Maybe for some, it was having children like Leah. Well, if I have children, maybe my husband will love me and accept me now. All the other things we pursue, we look to, to satisfy us. And we still feel empty inside, right? We had the vacation, we had the career, we got the promotion, we got the raise. We got the recognition, we got the award. We had 20 kids. <laughs> and we still feel empty, don't we? Because we were made for God. And only he can satisfy us inside. 
And we don't have to learn the hard way any longer. We could say, Lord, I'm done. I'm done with running after all this stuff. I'm done with running after all these things in this world, people, relationships, whatever it might be for you. I'm done, Lord. I don't want it anymore. I want to be able to sing that song and mean it with all of my heart. That you are my everything. You really are my everything. See, our inheritance and our completeness is in Christ. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, it says, And he, referring to God, put all things under his feet, referring to Jesus, and gave him, Jesus, to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Jesus wants to fill you all and all and over and over and satisfy you inside so that you don't look anywhere else. Like the woman at the well. That I love her story so much. Because in one relationship after another relationship after another relationship, but then when she ran into him, it was like, this is the Messiah. This is the one I heard about. I'm done. We're looking to relationships. I have found the one that has quenched the thirsting of my heart. And I just want to drink from his well forevermore. Colossians 2, verses 8 through 10 says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophies and empty deceit, according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of this world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him. Fact. Written as fact. Who is the head of all principality and power. You are complete in him. We have to remind ourselves of this. When we're tempted to turn to other things, to run to other things. Because this is written like fact. We are complete in him. What more do we need? The word for complete is and it means to be made full. We are made full in him. Our fullness comes from his fullness. That has to be real to us. We need to pray over that. Lord, make this real to me so that I don't desire anything else but you. And when I'm tempted, I know that it's not that thing that I need right now at this moment. It's you. It's you. And I, by faith, say with my mouth, you are enough for me. You are enough for me. I find myself saying that often since we started this Bible study. God, you're enough for me.
since all of God's fullness resides in Christ, every spiritual reality is found in Christ. This is from the Bible study. In Christ, we lack nothing. Since all the fullness of the Godhead dwells or permanently resides in the body of Jesus, the God-man, only Christ can complete us. We need nothing else. And our satisfaction can be found in him alone because he is enough. I'm going to close with George Mueller. He said, at more than 90 years of age, I read that and I was like, man, do I have a long way to go. In, a, in an address to ministers and other Christian workers, he said, I was converted in November 1825, <clears throat> but I didn't come to the point of total surrender of my heart until four years later in July 1829. It was then I realized my love for money, prominence, position, power, and worldly pleasure was gone. Can we say that from an honest heart? God and he alone became my all in all, and in him I found everything I needed, and I desired nothing else. How beautiful. Again, Romans 8, 32, scripture that we opened the first week of our Bible study. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And that all things is himself himself. Lord, I do thank you that you are teaching us that. I think it was Hannah Whittle Smith that said that's the last and greatest lesson that every Christian needs to learn, that God is enough for us. And it takes a lifetime learning that. And Lord, we thank you for Charles Spurgeon's life that testified that he came to that place where he realized he didn't need anything. He had everything he needed and was found in you. And how many of the saints that have gone before us, that was their testimony too, really their testimony, just it wasn't lip service, they lived that way 24 seven. God, I pray that this would be our testimony Lord, continue to show us the barriers that hinder us from growing in the knowledge of God in this way, that you truly are enough for us. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to burn up and expose the other idols that we look to in our heart, just like your children did and they came out of Egypt and crossed over the Red Sea and were in the wilderness for 40 years, Lord, and just turning into all different kinds of idols. And the history just repeated itself. We see it in Solomon and Jeremiah's time, Lord. God, help us, Lord. In our generation, I pray that you would help us to put it all away, 
all the idols, to put them all away, to allow you to reveal them and that we would take a hammer as it were to it and just smash it down to smithereens and blow the ashes away never to resurrect it again. God help us in our generation to truly live for you in this way, to be abandoned to you in this way. Lord, set our hearts on fire don't let our testimony be like the testimony in the church of Ephesus, how they were in their first love, but they drifted so far away from you, even though they were doing all the right things. They were doing all the right things, but their heart was so far from you. They had grown lukewarm. God, I pray that you would set our hearts ablaze, Lord, in our generation, and that that fire we carry in our heart will light other people up for God. Lord, I pray that, Jesus. So I do thank you for this time that we've had together, and I just pray that you would continue to work these truths deep into our hearts, and especially for the younger ones, Lord. I pray they wouldn't get caught in the trap of the lies of this world or entertainment or whatever else they look to. God, just don't let them go down that pathway. It's empty. It's meaningless. Solomon said it's all meaningless. Chasing after the wind. God, let us chase after. Let them chase after you with it, that has substance. You have substance. Lord, I pray that for the young ones, Lord, and for all of us, and anyone that's listening online that couldn't be here tonight, Lord, work in their hearts as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.